Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. It's a really beautiful Friday as we're recording this right now. So I'm sure everyone who's part of this interview, we're all in New York, uh, whether it's Long Island or Brooklyn. Um, so it's a very New York interview. Doesn't always happen. Um, Adam and I, he's my co-host this week. Hi, Adam. Hi, Andrew. Uh, we are joined with Lavelle Porter, who is an assistant professor of English at New York City College of Technology, CUNY. Uh, so hi, Lavelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, so I know Lavelle has seen the Ivory Tower Boiler Room tweeting up a storm uh, about reading his book, The Black Academic Life, and also I've had the privilege of teaching should Walt Whitman be hashtag canceled? And we'll get to the hashtag because my students were definitely really interested as um, so many of your readers probably are about that cancel culture aspect. And I know there's a whole story behind it um, about why you included it. But before we even do that, I know Adam really wanted to start with your publishing process. Um, so I'll let Adam take the first question. Sure. So um, one of the things that I was thinking about, uh, both when I was reading your article and when I was listening to you talk about the, um, the process of, of writing and publishing this article on, it, it, was, on a, it was on a different podcast um, sponsored by the Whitman Initiative. Um, I was I was curious about this sort of intersection that you seem to be trying to achieve between academia and pop culture. Um, and if you had anything to say about that, like what if, if the process is different writing that kind of article? I mean, obviously, it's a shorter article than most academic fair, but also if the process, if the thinking process is different, if the composition process is different then than a typical academic article? Um, I think the composition process in some ways is faster and more efficient when writing for um, you know, different platforms uh, than academic journals, uh, which I don't really write a lot of academic journal articles. I mean, I have a book that's published by a university press and um, that was a whole experience. Uh, but in some ways I actually prefer writing for these different online platforms. Um, and it's not even a preference, it's just that these are the outlets that have been willing to take my writing. <laughs> you know, I tried to get into the academic journals and I got shot down multiple times. Um, so, which has actually turned out to be great because I decided to, you know, I tell the origin story about my book was that I uh, submitted an article to an academic journal, they rejected it. 
Um, I was contacted by uh, Professor Keisha Blaine, who's publishing uh, the Black Perspectives blog. And um, she had a series on Afro-Asia and asked me about submitting something on Ishmael Reed's Japanese by Spring. I wrote a blog post for them. Um, an editor from the University Press saw that and got in touch with me. So, you know, mm. shout out to that journal for rejecting my article because that <laughs> my book became published. Um, so, you know, and I've written for different platforms like the New Inquiry and Poetry Foundation. And, um, you know, I, it just sort of kind of snowballed. I mean, I wrote one thing and then another from another platform said, hey, you know, we like that thing you wrote. So would you mind writing something for us? Um, so it, it's, it's kind of been, um, you know, like I said, this, I, I write for the platforms that actually want my <laughs> want my work and want me to write for them. Um, and the process, I think, is like I said, it's in some ways more efficient than I actually found it to be more productive than sometimes than writing for academic articles because the the process is much more um, intensive and engaged. Um, you know, when I write something for when I've written something for say the New England Career Poetry Foundation, you know, I, I get immediate editorial response to it and you know you really just have to kind of have to dig in and, and work on it until mm. it's ready for publication um, and then there's the uh, sort of almost like call it instant gratification but uh, more immediate gratification of actually seeing it you know <laughs> uh, circulate uh, much more quickly than it would in an academic journal article um, and um, there are still you know I think people you know a very like high quality of reader um, that you get uh, from this kind of public writing too uh, but um, when it comes to the actual, you know, content and substance of the writing, I think the process for me starts with reading. Um, you know, I just read as much as I can about the particular subject that I'm working on. And usually there's like years and years of reading that goes into it, just as it did with this article. Um, I've been, you know, reading and teaching Whitman uh, for, for years before uh, this got published. Mm. So, you know, reading is a part of it and also teaching is a part of it too, because I talk about pedagogy in the article. Uh, and it's just, I kind of, you know, stored up some ideas about this. And then the 200th anniversary came along and, um, you know, I'd already written for uh, JSTOR Daily. And I thought, you know, they asked me to do something for National Poetry Month and it just kind of came together. This is an opportunity to write about Whitman because you know, I've been sort of, uh, you know, germinating these ideas for a while. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was one of my questions, Lavelle. Did they reach out? and select you to write this piece because they knew about your work or this was something you had pitched to JSTOR Daily? I didn't pitch them about this. They asked me about, well, I had written previously, um, the previous article I wrote for them was about, um, you know, another problematic figure, uh, Bill Cosby, problematic oh. in a lot of different ways. Um, and it was all about Cosby and, um, you know, it's something that I address in the, in the book uh, towards the end, the conclusion uh, is his involvement in some of the most important, you know, popular representations of Black academics. Um, that's, you know, from uh, the Cosby show in a different world. And um, how that uh, sort of, actually his whole, you know, career uh, really speaks to some salient issues in um, uh, academic uh, representations, uh, Black academic representations in particular. So um, I'd written that article for them before, and then they asked me, you know, um, did I have another idea for one? So that's how I, that. I want to take about. a I want to take a step back. Can we explain to our non-academic listeners what JSTOR Daily is? Um, so we'll start with JSTOR is this is this massive database that mm -hmm. puts together enormous numbers of articles from 
um, from peer-reviewed publications all over the world and back through time. Um, I've read articles on that website that go back 100 years or 150 years, very mm. occasionally. Yeah. Um, there are some pretty serious issues with it in terms, I mean, we may, we may have leave to talk about this later in the hour about how you know, professors do not get paid for these articles, but JSTOR certainly gets paid for um, putting them up online for the convenience of academics. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah, I, that's absolutely uh, valid to say. And I, it's something I, you know, you, there's, there's always, uh, there was it, they say no ethical consumption under capitalism, you know, right. um, there's always these problems with different institutions that we engage with. And that's right. something I've, you know, considered uh, when it comes to the JSTOR as well. I mean, there, there's certainly um, there's some problems with that <laughs> platform. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. how would you explain um, JSTOR daily then? Is it a, like, is it equivalent to um, popular press in a way, just in terms of open access? Yeah, it's a popular blog that's um, adjacent to the JSTOR site. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things they like to do there is when we write these articles for JSTOR daily, uh, to link to uh, things that are in the JSTOR archives particularly ones that are um, like accessible um, and, and free to the public. Um, and in fact, I think in some cases they will make them um, open if they're not uh, when you cite them in these articles, so. Oh, that makes a lot of sense then with your work cited. Yeah. When you go mm -hmm. to um, Lavelle, should Walt Whitman be canceled? There's discussions about Whitman and race. I think that span 1940 to the contemporary period. Um, yeah. And that really famous June Jordan mm -hmm. uh, response that she has to Whitman that um, I think is really important and actually kind of goes to what has been burning on my mind that your article really, really caught fire. I mean, that because it was on JSTOR Daily and was free and open, that it got circulated very quickly. Um, so I've been curious I mean, I know how excited I was because your article was, I wouldn't say the first to problematize Whitman and race, but because there's a book called Whitman Noir, and I know you make reference to it, Lavelle, um, but it was the first to really just look head on at Whitman's racism that he espoused, whether it be um, derogatory racist names he called Black Americans, um, or whether it just be this type of poetic racism that seeps into his writing that, you know, what was the feedback? Like, I mean, I'm sure the feedback and even now, right, it's been two little more than two years. How did readers receive it? Well, I would say first that I synthesized, you know, several things that were already out there. I mean, one um, was the, uh, student at Northwestern, uh, Timothy McNair, um, mm -hmm. who you know, protested having to sing uh, from, from uh, Whitman's lyrics, uh, which he was really the catalyst for this. And um, I'd never really contacted him. I, that was one of the things I, you know, if I were doing like a serious journalist, <laughs> I think I, I would have done that. Um, and I, I just got the impression that maybe he was kind of done with it. So I didn't know whether contacting him would, would be digging up, you know, old stuff that he's like, because clearly it was, it was pretty intense 
uh, when he made that protest because that's what went viral was him uh, making this protest and then it got picked up by the Chronicle of Higher Education and other platforms. So um, I was a little reticent about like, should I, should I contact him? On one hand, I'm writing about something that he did, which was really the catalyst for this conversation, but you know, does he not wanna be bothered with this um, at all? Um, so I think his protest uh, was definitely something that um, spawned this article. Um, as it did, you know, for Mary, one of the pieces that I cite in there is um, C.A. Conrad's article about Whitman, um, which was in response to McNair's protest too. Um, and then there were, as you said, Whitman Noir, which those really just kind of started as like a review of Whitman Noir. I was reading it and, you know, taking notes about each of the articles in it. And uh, because I, I was curious about um, this aspect of Whitman and I, I've been teaching him and, you know, I, I thought, you know, this, these are important uh, issues to bring up because, because of all the reasons why I <laughs> spelled out in the article that he's this, you know, symbol of, of democracy and he's a poet of democracy and yet there's, you know, this uh, uh, strain of, of racist thought uh, that you could very easily find in some of his commentary. So, you know, how do we, how do we grapple with that? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I'm really starstruck right now just because my whole course about questioning the poet of democracy was built on your article and just your work, Lavelle. And, you know, it's a humble moment for me to actually meet you in this way. So I want to recognize that. Like you really did set off this transparent conversation about you're not, as one of my students yesterday actually just said, we're not going to throw Whitman uh, out with the bathwater. And maybe that does get us to this whole, I know you said now, if you were writing this article, you might be more hesitant about cancel culture as an aspect. Mm -hmm. So can you tell, tell us more about that? Like why, um, you know, why might you be um, resistant to just having even cancel in the title? Yeah, well, I just want to say I also appreciated your uh, article um, talking back to Whitman and uh, seeing that you had cited my work in it was really uh, great. And I was like, wow, okay, somebody actually you know, got some use out of this. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's was, it was great to read that. And, and you know, hopefully we can talk about uh, your article and how you've taught Whitman too. Um, because I like the fact you engage with the, the pedagogy of, of, of Whitman. And that's, uh, as I mentioned in my article, you know, was part of what led me into writing about this. And um, part of the way that I've engaged with Whitman is by teaching um, his writing in these classes at, uh, at City Tech. Yeah. And, and being where we're located at City Tech, uh, we're near some like Whitman historic sites too. So um, it's a great set, you know, pieces of literature to engage with. Um, and oh yeah, and sorry, just cause yeah, this is the organic nature, all of you listening. This is yeah. how you know we are going off the cuff, but, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming too, City Tech, its demographic is pretty diverse. It's not, you're not teaching all white intellectuals. No, not by a long shot. I mean, there's probably, there, if there, if the, most of the white students at, at City Tech are um, Russian, Ukrainian uh, immigrants, uh, Polish, you know, um, it's, it's very much a working class Brooklyn uh, school. 
and um, we don't even actually have an English major. It's a vocational and technical college. Mm -hmm. So our English department includes, you know, composition courses that are required and uh, some literature courses that students take as electives, uh, but we don't actually have an English major uh, there. So um, all of our students are going into other fields and um, they're in, you know, going into working class professions. So yeah, it's a very different kind of student body than it would be at a, you know, some sort of elite college. And um, that's, I think, rewarding in many ways, challenging in many ways in terms of the, the lack of resources that are available to us sometimes. And we have to negotiate that. Do you, so, do you yeah. find that you, that um, your students, what, what, let me see how I want to ask this. Um, if, if you're not teaching them, like an English major, they uh, will come into, into an English class already knowing where they want this class to fit in with everything else. Like, like they want to read more books. They want to um, get a sense of the sort of scope and breadth of literature and have opinions about like how the history of, of the books in the class fit into the larger history that they're piecing together in their minds, one book, one article, one conversation at a time. I'm, and I know that because I was an English major. So I'm curious if you don't mind, um, what, what's your sense of, of what the expectations and the uh, mindset of your students coming into your class? And I guess, what's your mindset teaching them? If you don't I think, you know, this is something that I spoke about in another um, interview that I did about my book. And that's, you know, we have to make that case to our students. And I think that's one of the challenges that I uh, accept about teaching this, you know, at the place where I teach. Because uh, it's not just it's not just assumed, oh, this is an, it's the class on American literature. So this is something that you have to know about mm -hmm. as an English major, you know, because this is a major part of our curriculum. Um, you know, each of our classes does have a set of established learning outcomes that we have to incorporate into the class. Uh, but many of the students are coming there, um, they're not, you know, coming there because they're uh, seeing this as some sort of professional thing. And uh, it's, it's an elective that they have to take. Uh, most of the time people end up enrolled in your class because it fits their schedule and they have to take it. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. not like, you know, mm -hmm. anyway, oh, I want to take American literature with Professor Porter. No, no, they just come to your class because <laughs> it, it, it fits their schedule and they have to take it. Um, and, will, in some cases they are kind of interested in it, but. Sure, um, I will register a note of sympathy. <laughs> um, Andrew knows that I, um, that I've taught many um, English classes at um, bilingual schools, mm -hmm. um, Mandarin English. Uh, bilingual schools and um, and I teach specifically creative writing classes there and I refer to it as teaching creative writing to students against their will. Mm. Yeah it can be that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, and not always but sometimes. Yeah and yeah. I think too like I'm realizing what sparked my interest in who you're teaching Whitman to is really important and I think yeah. it comes in your writing Lavelle that you're responding to your students like all instructors are, but there's also like you writing for JSTOR Daily. It's an article that your students would be interested in reading, but also accessing that platform. They're not going to go to those very codified, paywalled types of journals. I mean, even that technical jargon, like I even say to my students, I think that's just, there's almost this breaking point right now of who are we writing for as academics? And I think you show us this way forward, which is 
we should be writing for our students and for the public. Um, well, Andrew, to be clear, I, I didn't go to paywalled journals when I was an undergraduate very much. If certainly not if I could help it. Oh, Adam went to Columbia. <laughs> Just to <laughs> Lavelle, you had this context. Um, right loud. But and I went to Kane University in North Jersey, um, near Nork. So okay. you know, I actually, Adam and I have a lot of these conversations, and I think this is productive. Is, um, I would say I don't know the statistic right now, but I think when I went to Kane, I graduated in 2011. No, sorry, woo, 2014. <laughs> Um, 2011 was high school. Um, but yes. I know, and that you both are right. like, oh, Adam's young. I mean, you're both thinking Andrew's young. Uh, but <laughs> I am turning 29 soon. Um, I'm getting older. I'm almost oh, 30. Gosh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> but yes, you are. Yes, you are. Good. So like, the um makeup of Kane is about 30 to 40 percent um African American. I would say 20% are bilingual. And then there's a white American population, which, you know, is also mixed, but um, like a larger Jewish American percentage. So I took a lot of courses, like I even took um, courses on the tradition of Black American literature. And actually my first um, survey of American literature was taught by a black woman, which we know in academia, um, black female professors are unfortunately few and far between in English departments. And, but that was my exposure to Whitman was through her. And like through Song of Myself, she was talking about slavery and Whitman not being an abolitionist. And I thought that was really important because I started to find these tensions in Whitman scholarship. Um, where even just recognizing that he wasn't an abolitionist seemed to be um, unsettling some scholars because right. you're recognizing that he's not the answer to all democracy, but I never thought he was. So it was like kind of countering just even who's in the classroom is so important about, you know, having this type of anti-racist pedagogy in some universities especially I went to a teaching college, it's part of a lot of those conversations, even just because of where the university is located. But say in Adam's case, anti-racist pedagogy might not be, you know, part of that instructor's um, mission. Or even, you know, at Columbia, they rely more on the lecture style. Um, I mean, I think it's changing, but um, yeah. So all of that is to say, was is there backlash, not even just to your article, Lavelle, but do you feel that there's even an anti-racist pedagogy that it's being accepted in universities right now? And I know that's such a large question because of the state of our country. Yeah. Uh, well, you talked about the reception of the article, and that kind of gets to your other question, which we uh, didn't quite get to circle away from was um, the the whole uh, cancel culture uh, angle of it. Uh, well, it, just as you said, you know, when I this was 2019, so uh, that word has become much more obnoxious. I think in the <laughs> months and years since, 
Uh, I almost certainly would not use that framework now. And at the time I thought, oh, I was just kind of being cute, you know, uh, should it be hashtag canceled, you know? Um, and one of the comments that I saw online, just random stuff is like, how can you cancel somebody who's already dead? Uh, like, all right, I'm just- I That's was, one of the real questions. <laughs> like, like I was being colorful. Come but on. we could exhume um, the body in Camden. That's <laughs> <laughs> and I, I grew up by Camden. Please no one do that. <laughs> No. I'm not they advocating that, for that. They did that to a pope once. There oh, was no. one pope who hated his his predecessor so much <laughs> that he that he this may be a legend, but that he tried he tried him in court, habeas corpus and everything, but the corpus was defunct. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was a tangent. <laughs> I will. You know, not really. I mean, matters. you know, because we, we act like these, you know interrogations of various historical figures is something that's so like odious and intense and it's like gosh if you guys studied any religious history like you want yeah, to exactly canceled? <laughs> like people were literally burned at the stake you know mm -hmm. for they to define the church like come on yeah so even in salem we have our yeah. own witch trials yeah um, like to me that's cancel well yeah uh -huh. that is definitely a type of cancel culture but yeah i mean you do show though what I always see is the root of cancel culture is really, in my opinion, the um, just side of what can be in cancel culture is holding someone who espouses problematic views to open their eyes and realize that they need to do better. So it's a type of accountability ethic. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of cancel culture. I don't think of this right-wing conservative logic where they actually do try to defame people's names. And I mean, like we're seeing right now in the news, those who even are talking about white supremacy right. encountering it are actually being fired in certain school districts. So in my opinion, yeah, is, is they are trying to, they're going after a certain framework. Yeah, there was this whole thing about them expanding this professor watch list now. At, I believe the turning point. Um, who's, oh, they were know, just on our campus, by the way. Okay. Yep. So there you go. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's at Stony Brook, uh -huh. which yeah. used to have Janis Joplin singing in the <laughs> 70s. And, and isn't particularly political mm -mm. as a rule. No, I mean, I would say the students are pulled up in the corral. They're not necessarily... And I don't mean that against the undergrads, but it, Adam's right. It doesn't have a very political activist. It's a lot of it's a lot of commuters. Yeah, have to get when you have to get home by seven. But you're not again, sticking around for rallies. And right. Turning point, though. I mean, sorry. Go ahead, Lavelle. You were saying something about that. Yeah. yeah no, that's that's you know that's uh, relevant to what we're we're talking about here, and that's that. Uh, I found my students tend not to be so engage with all of this. Like in some ways the, the, the whole like culture wars thing is something that people who are older kind of impose mm -hmm. on college campuses. Because um, when I've had conversations with my students about this um, or about any kind of like culture wars issue, I, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm sort of trying to be provocative and say, hey, you know, have you heard about this particular issue? And those students are like, I don't know. You know? So I had, <laughs> then I have to spend time explaining to them why this thing is controversial. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we get it. Um, so, so it's, uh, you know, it's sometimes like when I taught this article, the last time I taught the American Literature Survey, um, you know, there was one student who kind of had a reaction um, to it. 
because uh, I, I said, and I merely just posted the article and talked about, you know, so what would be canceled. And then, mm-hmm. you know, his response was, well, cancel culture is stupid. And, and, you know, and it's obvious he was one of these people who was speaking up and really hadn't read the article. So, so it was like, okay, you know, clearly, you know, he's heard something about this because, you know, he's having this really strong reaction to the concept of cancel culture, um, but hadn't really engaged with the substance of the article, which was the whole point. And once he did that, I mean, he did, he still kind of said, yeah, cancel culture is still stupid, but I get what you're saying in your article, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's some students who kind of, some of this stuff trickles in, but, um, you know, when you teach, again, we're talking about the type of institution mm-hmm. where we teach, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes these uh, culture wars debates that are happening on certain kind of college campuses or are happening in the, you know, uh, pundit sphere uh, are not really happening in the classrooms themselves. So, you know, uh, there are times when, I, when you try to teach the, teach the controversies and, you know, you really have to like reconstruct the controversies to even teach them because mm-hmm. students aren't paying as much attention to this as the, you know, pundits would have you to believe. That's a really interesting way of framing. Thank you, Lavelle, about like, yeah. just, I mean, it even in my mind, and I'm not trying to target the Ivy Leagues. I mean, I took a course at Columbia. I have been to a lot of the Ivy Leagues, but, and I have friends there. I mean, I feel like I'm now- Some of my best friends are in the Ivy Leagues. Some of my best friends are, yeah, in the Ivy Leagues. defend yourself, just go for it. I know, I'm like flipping the script, Um, but it's, it is interesting to me. I agree with you, Lavelle. I feel that certain scholars, especially at more privileged institutions, whether it be the Ivy Leagues, whether it be, these very well-funded liberal art colleges, which unfortunately are not really as robust as they used to be, but um, have made cancel culture in literature, especially this real almost Moby Dick quest um, of trying to just find the whale. And it's, it, it just keeps, you can't find it because it really almost just seems like the sticking point. And you know, I'm not asking you to mention any specific scholars by name, but, you know, I've even encountered where there's been panels held about, are we throwing out Walt Whitman? And I just don't find it very productive because why is the question, are we throwing out an author instead of like you say, which is where you really gave me the framework for my article about why aren't we talking back like this tradition that has existed with June Jordan and with James Baldwin and with Langston Hughes, Langston Hughes's I Too Sing America or Let America Be America Again. Those were poems I used this week um, with my students. And why aren't we just expanding the vision that Whitman is not a token or shouldn't be a token? Like, why is Whitman the hero for a flawed America? Yeah. And with his identity, it just doesn't make sense. And you, what you also have to do with, in his case, uh, which is again, something I also addressed in the article is to reconstruct the critical reception of Whitman. Um, mm-hmm. He was not uh, seen as, you know, one of the sort of great white fathers of American literature. Um, he was, you know, uh, to this day, there's still, well, maybe not as much as they used to. I'm not gonna call anybody's name, but there are some people who've questioned, you know, whether homosexuality has anything to do with Whitman's poetics. Um, oh yeah. You know. And it's, it's like, you know, <laughs> that's the that's the uh, that's been the sort of establishment's view of Walt Whitman. So I think that in one way you need to recover 
you know, what made women radical yeah. um, in the first place. Um, and that is, you know, the, the way that he was so candid about, you know, human sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, and I, when I teach my students this, it's like, you know, remember this was written in the 1850s. It's when this thing first yeah. came out. So, you know, when he's talking about like delirious love juice, uh, somebody put that to paper in 1855. And that's pretty remarkable, you know? <laughs> um, so that's, you know, th that's the thing that I try to recover is like, you know, this guy, this is somebody who is has sort of been canonized, but um, we've sort of, uh, by doing that, you kind of eliminated some of the things that, that made him, you know, um, radical in the first place. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear you say mm -hmm. that because it's why I'm happy that this conversation of queerness and race, they're really linked in my opinion, and maybe it's just because I'm writing that right now in my dissertation, but even when I reread the 28 bathers section 11 of Song of Myself, my students said, wait, because we had just talked about race and um, darkness with what is the grass, that section, because the grass is supposed to be very dark. And I asked, why is it dark? Why is it a specific color that's not green? Like, where is Whitman heading? And he starts to head into this darkness, what Toni Morrison critiques, right? About playing in the darkness, playing in the dark, sorry, playing in the dark, um, about how whiteness and darkness are these racialized concepts for these white authors, Melville, Hawthorne, um, Poe, yeah, Conrad. I mean, almost all white authors, even- um, Shakespeare. Yeah, even Harriet Beecher Stowe, I mean, we're not going to, we don't have to get into Uncle Tom's Cabin, but that's a whole a lot going on there. Um, yeah. But even about these erotic men bathing nude are racialized. And mm -hmm. yesterday, this actually happened just yesterday. I said, wait, white bellies. I'm like, wait, I need to write about that. Because why are they white bellies? Why can't I pose the question, why isn't Whitman able to figure out that the races of all men could be bathe nude together? Why are they not integrated? And that's where I keep finding him running up to the brick wall. It's like, he just can't see beyond these racialized mm -hmm. concepts. And even, you know, would black and white men be bathing nude together in that time? Mm -hmm. I mean, in certain communities, maybe, but it was segregated, but also a system of slavery. Um, but yeah, so I, I continue to see Whitman. He's trying, but he just can't do it. He can't create this equal, equalized force between the races. Um, yeah, even if you read the, the slave at auction um, segment, yeah. you know, the way that the body is eroticized there, it's really, um, there's so many different ways that you can read and interpret um, that and, and that in the one hand he is sort of eroticizing you know black people's bodies um, but he's doing so on the auction block as a white man right so there's that aspect of it where you know this is not an equal situation this is not an equal, equal opportunity eroticization going on here but there's a serious you know power differential that has to be acknowledged in terms of the white gaze um, so yeah, I think this is why, you know, what you write about the queer color critique is such a, you know, rich way of approaching, uh, Whitman, um, 
you know, and I, I didn't, I, I cited, you know, Rod Ferguson in, in, the, in my book and, oh, yeah. you know, I was just kind of excited to see that you'd use the same kind of framework for uh, talking about Whitman. Yes, yes. And, um, and the book Queering the Color Line has really helped me mm-hmm. too, right? Because the terms of race, racialized categories and sexual orientation categories come out at the same time at the mm-hmm. turn of the century. And that's because um, they're connected, right? But like what you're saying, Lavelle, Whitman does this fetishistic, I would even go so far as saying voyeuristic way of looking at black bodies of that they're always sexualized. Like they're, they're always at this point of sexuality. And I mean, that's such a trope that white authors used to, you know, and that's where Harry Beecher Stowe does that too, even though, okay, sure. Uh, and you're going to hear my opinion of Uncle Tom's Cabin now. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, sure. She might have tried to write a novel to advocate abolitionism, but in that process, she still reinscribes these very racialized, but also, um, especially with dialect, still you know, shows black Americans on this different hierarchy based on the color of their skin, like the lighter the color, the more eloquent they speak in her novel. And I was really, I pushed back a lot with my instructor in that course, um, because it was a thesis course. But I mean, I think my instructor was ready. It was, but yeah, these authors, in my opinion, it's not, um, enough to just say they were of their time. And I still hear that a lot about Whitman. I'm sure you've heard mm-hmm. it a lot, Lavelle, but I'll hear, well, Whitman was of his time. So that's why he might have started to have a eugenic belief because mm-hmm. he does at the end of his life have this eugenicist idea. And it's very, very scary. Um, and I mean- Yeah, I mean, the, the oh. of his time framework does you know, explain uh, in some ways, um, the the perspective from which some of these writers, you know, were writing, and in Whitman's case, that's definitely that, that is definitely the case. Uh, but it also, um, I think, avoids the the reality that there were people in that time who were anti-racist, right? right? I think a, a recent great example that I just saw was, um, you know, they recently removed the statue of Robert E. Lee. Mm. Um, in Virginia. And um, the writer, uh, historian Hillary Green had this great uh, thread on Twitter about this, uh, all the Black activists who were opposed to that statue being put up in the first place in 1890, you know. Um, And there were many people um, who were opposed to it and understood that this was, you know, part of a, uh, you know, racist idea of this lost cause. Um, and that this would become this, this symbol of white supremacy, which it is and remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the people who are celebrating it and look at people who are lamenting the statue coming down. Uh, but to say that no one in, in their time ever opposed this, um, I think is to uh, you know, erase the, 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 the anti-racist work that was being done. Um, and uh, it, it's in many cases just to ignore like that black people existed in that time. Yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That was it. There were some people there who weren't, you know, buying into this idea of white supremacy, uh, and uh, they existed in, in his time. So there were people who were thinking that way. Yeah. And you know, it's it's something that um, 
Craig Stephen Wilder, um, who wrote Ebony and Ivy, uh, and I wish I had a place where I could say a site to say where he said this, but it was it was in a talk that he gave at the Schomburg, and um, he was talking about um, abolitionism, right? And the idea of abolitionism, and that abolitionism is is this sort of escape valve when we begin to talk about slavery, that you know slavery was this awful institution, but abolitionism came along and people eventually changed their ideas, um, and what he says is that actually. Uh, when you put abolitionism in the story, it makes it worse because there were people who were abolitionists from the very origins of the institution of chattel slavery, right? So those people who were pro-slavery weren't just doing it because it was of their time. They were making a conscious decision to be racist. They were making a conscious decision to participate in mm -hmm. this dehumanizing institution because there were people making arguments against it all along. So it isn't like abolitionism came along in the 1850s and then people realized the errors of the ways there were abolitionists talking about the you know, inhumanity of this institution from the very beginning. And those people were just ignored. Right. And so the first actually, abolitionist is uh, Bartolome de las Casas that I know of anyway, and he's from like the 1500s. Yeah, and complicated too, because of his, you know, um, I think he was also like really racist toward the, the um, indigenous people, right? Mm -hmm. um, opposite. He, he loved the indigenous people he lived with. And, and when he started writing, he was saying that we shouldn't enslave the South Americans, we should enslave Africans instead. Uh, but then okay. I think he realized later in life, wait a minute, that's just, that's the same thing, but one step removed. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so we can't, we can't, he was definitely ahead of his time. We, we certainly can't expect him to be perfect. He grew in the course mm -hmm. of his lifetime. But, um, but, but it's, it's to your point, right? That, that it's not like these are new ideas that mm -hmm. you shouldn't hurt people and you shouldn't kill people and you shouldn't steal people mm -hmm. from their homes and sell them. These are pretty old ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, at that time. yeah. And like you're saying, Lavelle, there were really staunch abolitionists, but also, um, you know, Frederick Douglass was photographed as much as Whitman. Mm -hmm. And some will say that Walt Whitman was the most photographed writer of the time. And I always say, how about Frederick Douglass? Yeah. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's almost like the way I feel when Harriet Jacobs and her incidents in the life of a slave girl, which I think is such a tantamount text in the mid 1800s. She was only able to get that published because of Lydia Maria Child. Mm -hmm who supported her and Lydia Maria Child was definitely more of a staunch abolitionist than Walt Whitman. I mean, Walt Whitman didn't even call himself, like refused to call himself. And I think when we're dealing with a writer who actually refuses to call himself an abolitionist and even refuses to say he's a suffragette, and then there's almost this anachronistic, right, or out of time way of reinterpreting Whitman as being part of these political movements. But if you never belonged to those political movements when you were living, mm -hmm. it's really hard to try to interpret someone as being politi politically active. Even, you know, Horace Traubel, who was German Jewish, um, his biographer in Philly, well, Camden, but Philly and Camden, um, argued with Whitman about his views on race, races, on race, but also said, do you really believe that about um, African-Americans not being able to survive because they're not 
in this Darwinian type of evolution of survival of the fittest, like Horace Traubel pushed back. So I think Lavelle, like you're saying, there were people who argued with Whitman in his time. It's not like he sailed through with being seen as very progressive. Um, but yeah, I, I just think some, this gets to the heart of academia. Like there's certain ways of trying to preserve certain writers. And I know Adam had brought a question to me that I really was eager for you to talk about, which is, right, Adam, you had said, we're not throwing out Whitman, but like, are there any writers, Lavelle? I'm now answering, asking the question Adam wanted, but- oh, No, no, no. <laughs> like, are I'll there ask. any writers? I mean, yeah, go ahead, Adam. We, 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 always, we always engage in this sort of negotiation, right? How many people are reading John Dryden right now, right? It's not because he was racist. It's because there's only so much you can read and something has to give. Uh, so, so um, and, and this, this goes back to your idea about how canceling, can, the word cancel is kind of like, it's, it's been played, but, but we're still having this conversation about like, I wanna pick up a book and read something that's gonna, that's gonna be uplifting and wonderful. Can it be Whitman? And are there other authors where you say, no, not anymore? This author, like this author is too problematic, too racist, too sexist, too, too something, or just not, not a good enough writer. So hold on to that question. We will get back to it. I just want to thank you all for listening to this podcast episode and for supporting the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are all volunteers here. And the only way that we can rely on expanding this public humanities vision of having a literary and artistic community is with all of you, our listeners. So thank you all. If you can, please share our podcasts, like it, um, subscribe on the platform you're listening to. That really does help us leave a review for us. We also really appreciate if you can to donate to us, you can donate at ivorytowerboilerroom.com and you'll see our donate button there. You can be a one-time or monthly subscriber. And there's a lot of exciting news and coming out in the fall that we are currently working on a Patreon. So more on that to come, but thank you all. And now back to that question that I just posed. Like, like some, some writers, I mean, some writers, you give them a pass, like Whitman, there, there are places in his writing that are so good that you're like, you, you read the racist part and you're like, just don't do it again. <laughs> there are other valuable things in his work. You know, that's, that's one of the things I talk about is his perspectives on like nature and, yeah, exactly. um, and uh, the, you know, urban life, urban affection. You know, there's just so many things in there that are, I think, worth engaging with in his case. Um, are there other writers? I don't know. Uh, you know, we had, had a conversation with Matt Miller, um, another Whitman scholar, and um, he mentioned H.P. Lovecraft, um, who's not somebody I'm not familiar enough with to even, you know, assign to write, but he's, he, that was one of his limit cases. It's like, I don't know if it's worth teaching this anymore. Right. Um, but still, I mean, if you're talking about the horror genre, you know, you can't really bypass H.P. Lovecraft. No. He's such a foundational figure in that. Um, so yeah, there's, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there are definitely, um, 
certain people in public life, let's put it that way, <laughs> not just limited to literature, who I think, you know, because of things they've done, it's like, all right, we can't really, I don't really want to engage with that anymore. Right. There, there are other people to, this is one of the things we sort of talk about this in, in, in a negative way, but there are so many other writers to, <laughs> to read, you know, speaking to your point, um, Adam, yeah. there's so many other writers that you can, you know, engage with. Why waste time on somebody who's, right. you know, just terrible. And maybe it has to do with authenticity too, right? Like I'm just thinking of someone who I've read for my um, studies. I have to know James Fenimore Cooper with The Last of the Mohicans. But if I'm teaching about authenticity of Native American life, absolutely not. Like it's so derogatory, but it's also this type of primitive way of looking at Native American culture. And in my way, that's what you really helped do I mean, you do more than this, Lavelle, but you really give an angle of what question are you asking of Whitman? And if your question is, Whitman represents Black Americans as having authority and agency over their life, I would say that is not a good question to like, that's not something Whitman is going to allow you to really dig at, or it's going to show you a very limited view of Black consciousness. Right. And I mean, right, you take that into W.E.B. Du Bois for the black academic life, um, that idea of his double consciousness. And it, it does seem like you're saying Whitman does help with views around nature, eroticism. Um, and also, why is it a problem to look at um, racism in Whitman? Like it actually just expands the idea of almost how he's trapped and you know the limitation of only reading one author like i for me it's just why are we only reading one author like and it introduces students to the complexity of these questions that the you know that we sort of get this assumption that oh eventually everybody figured out that slavery was wrong no i mean there were people still making pro slavery there's still people making pro slavery arguments now you know (laughs) like you know um we assume that these things were so easy. And I think this is an opportunity to teach students how, you know, complex and, uh, and how contentious these issues were in their own times and that, you know, they weren't very easily resolved. Um, but there were ways that people found, you know, to fight back politically. Um, okay. But it wasn't like, you know, those things changed because everybody resolved the question. Okay, now we're not gonna treat black people this right. way anymore. Cool. I want to pick another. I want to pick another pivotal uh, literary figure whose um, who, both his queerness and his racism have sort of been elided by historians. Um, Shakespeare, which is more in my era, right? If you're not teaching Shakespeare from a uh, like in the context of things like racism and imperialism, you're missing out. It's like I mean. You're, you're, you're playing half the game. And the same thing goes if you're not teaching Shakespeare's queerness. Like what, what's, le- what's left to teach? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, so, representation so- only gets you so far, right? Like, and that's, you know, like Othello. We hear the traditional scholars would say, well, traditional, by traditional, I mean like older generation um, scholarship that, oh, well, Othello is a more, so therefore, Shakespeare represented um, black life. And they, that's all they would do. And that's been done to Whitman a lot. So yeah, thank you, Adam. I think that's a good in- parallel. 
Well, that, that's an interesting case that brings us back to the previous, uh, the previous topic, because you have Othello at the beginning of the play, you know, very, very um, serene and intellectual and stuff like that. And by the end of the play, he's been driven to this, like, this paroxysm of rage and, and stuff like that, just because, just because life has been so difficult for him that he's become what people expect him to become. Um, yeah, but you but, ask like, so, if you don't teach, sorry, Adam, but if you don't teach Shakespeare through a type of imperialist. Yeah, exactly. Post-colonial exactly. even, like doing a type of post-colonial reading, like the way you would exactly. do with Whitman, and even I would go so far as saying an anti-racist type of right. lesson. Well, my question is, um, I mean, none of us can know this, but how many professors are actually doing that type of anti-racist pedagogy? You know, like you kind of just go on um, uh, word of mouth or you hope that they have the best intentions when they teach these texts, but... Mm -hmm. An instructor has a lot of power with their students. Um, so like that's where, you know, Lavelle returning back to this in this interview, like returning back to, you know, should Walt Women be canceled? But do you think that, I don't want to say have the scholars learned their lesson because that sounds very <laughs> belittling, but do you think that change is happening in the realm of just even expanding the canon or using only one author to look at America's nationalist roots? Uh, I think there are, I think, I've, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like this sort of naive believer in progress, but, you know, I do think there have been some changes. Um, that have made, been made in terms of, uh, you know, expanding um, the field of writers who are taught, you know, just thinking about American literature as a field. Um, I, you know, I, I do think there has been some progress that's been made um, in terms of the curriculum. Um, still a lot more, you know, to go. Uh, you know, I have my questions about, you know, how much institutions, uh, can even you know change these things because they're so deeply embedded um, in the very logic of these institutions. Um, but you know, there I think there's been you know there are more programs in Black Studies now, for instance, than there have been in the past. Um, you have uh, I think more uh, Black authors uh, being taught um, and different Black authors you know being mm -hmm. taught. Uh, now. So uh, I think there's been some changes. Um, and I think with a lot of, uh, you know, people who are coming up through graduate schools now uh, are, are bringing a different perspective uh, to this. So I, I'm not, you know, I, I think there's, there's some reason to be hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Another question I know we both really wanted to ask, especially you outlined this in the Black Academic Life, is it was so important that you make this very clear statement. I did not have prestigious fellowships or I, this book did not come out of me having leave from teaching. Like you actually really insert this almost memoir-esque uh -huh. style, which I really appreciate. I call it auto theory to my students, but 
you do this really good weaving of, and I was teaching this full course load, but I, you know, this really impacted the way that my book shaped out. Like, could you speak about what your decision was for really outlining your identity in that moment? Well, I thought it was salient to, you know, bring up in a book about um, higher education, <laughs> a book about, you know, representations of higher education and how those representations uh, match the reality of higher education, you know, to, to get into something that's been debated ad nauseum with the release of the chair, you know. Uh, I don't know if you all had a chance to see that yet. I kind of had yeah. to see it given what I've read. Oh, yeah, it's like every interview now, the chair, it, it comes up yeah. if it's someone in the you academic community. It. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and one of the things about that, and I kind of bring this up in the book, you know, uh, is there's a you know significant overrepresentation of elite institutions when it comes to academic novels and academic fiction, you know, including films and television shows that are made about academia. And you know, I can't even you know propose my own theories about it. I think a part of it is is a function of like privilege, of wealth and privilege. I mean, there. People who have attended these sort of institutions have a lot of resources, have a lot of time, and feel like their experiences in college were important, mm -hmm. and have connections to publishing houses that will publish, you know, their experiences of college in fictionalized form, and have access to, you know, the film industry that will make films that are on very pretty, you know, picturesque, uh, bucolic college campuses, and you know that tell the stories of, uh, you know, whatever it is they went through during their four years at, at Harvard or Yale. Um, so, you know, there's, I think within the genre, um, it is kind of skewed toward those institutions. And that means that mm. institutions like the places where we work aren't as represented in that literature. Um, and as I said in a previous interview, partly because I don't think we have the time, you know, we're teaching four or five classes a semester, you know, with students chock full in every section. Um, it's, and no leave. So it's kind of hard to, to write that novel about community college life. Um, when you're, you know, teaching your brains out. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's, there's that. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to, you know, because I think uh, there are a lot of assumptions about scholarship that it um, always comes from this sort of R1 model of, you know, you get this tenure track job and then you have this, you know, two one teaching load and you have all these resources to be able to go to archives. Um, and spend a lot of time working on it. And I just, I just felt like it was important to register that that was not how this book was produced. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, I did have to spend a lot of time teaching um, and that teaching the students was uh, one of the sources of, of knowledge that I'm drawing on. Uh, those experiences helped inform uh, the way that I think about higher education in my book. So it is interesting that the title, The Black Academic Life, suggests at least I'm, I'm going to say first impressions i thought oh okay this is going to be a memoir about being a college professor and then it and then and then i read the book mm -hmm. um, or then i read like the first line of the introduction i was like oh no i i was completely confused um but the there is there is a sort of interesting um sort of there's an interesting paradox to the fact that the title is very suggestive of a personal book, but as you're saying, the book is, is not, not only is it not based on your experiences, it's based on your reading of these novels about university life by people who had black academic experiences like W.E.B. Du Bois. 
but it's also like you were saying it's a completely different kind of campus from the one that you teach on so you're you're actually uh functioning at a remove even from uh these people who are who are teaching like like the the main characters in the quest of the silver fleece which i started reading on your recommendation mm -hmm. and is it's gorgeous obviously but um but so so you're separate separate from this as well in a way and yes and no um yes and no i mean i i went to a historically black college and so many of these books um by black writers uh feature you know um life at historically black colleges which is Something and if you read the the sort of critical literature on academic novels is is very absent. Um, mm -hmm. You don't see a lot of that, and that was because critics weren't really paying attention to those books. I mean, they were studying this genre, but weren't really, you know, they had access to the same libraries I had. So you know, it's like, <laughs> why didn't you find these books? You know, um, and, I, and that's that's harsh, you know, because we all miss things as we're writing. But um, you know, when you when particular things consistently get missed, um, yeah. then you have to ask the question why. So uh, I think, yeah, there's, there's a uh, within, if you read, you know, these black academic novels, I think you see a, a greater diversity of the type of institutions that are there. You have people who like, you know, Zadie Smith's on beauty, which is very much in that traditional model of the, you know, elite academic novel. Um, but you also get something like Alice Walker's Meridian, um, which is a set of historically black college, you know? Uh, so uh, I think I, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a, there's this question, this push and pull of um, representation that I talk about um, in the books, where black intellectuals are thinking through the implications of being set up as representative figures, you know, representing the race in a particular kind of way, um, which is something that you know, drawing on Du Bois's talented tenth concept is very much a part of black intellectual life. Um, because you know, becoming educated at that level was something that was rare, and therefore, black people were expected had this obligation to, you know, serve the race and lead the race, right? But then there's also, well, you're an individual, and you know, you know, you have your own ideas and beliefs, um, and in, in many ways, it's very unfair for you to carry the entire burdens of the race uh, yourself, and it's inaccurate <laughs> for one particular person to do that to try to speak on behalf of people who are, and it's amazing, capable of speaking on behalf of themselves. So, yeah. um, so that's, a, that's a tension that you find in these works. But I think what's great about the, these particular works that I cover is that we have more instances of black intellectuals talking to each other about these things. So like the first part of our conversation was all about like the figure of, you know, African-Americans in um, mostly let's say Eurocentric literature, right? You know, mm -hmm. what is, where does the, you know, the black person fit, fit into Whitman's framework or you know, any of the other authors that we talked about before. Um, what I really liked about these academic novels was that you saw more of a dialogue among black intellectuals. It was more of an interracial conversation um, where people are speaking to each other and not just sort of trying to uh, you know, plead humanity uh, to white folks, which is you know, well, the way that black and, literature too often ends up being appropriate. Yeah. You start with that quotation from, from Du Bois mm -hmm. about um, it's some, I'm not gonna remember it exactly. He, he has such a way of putting things, but um, yeah. it's basically, if you, don't, if you don't realize that black people are people, go read another book. Mm. Yeah, like, well, you're just not gonna reach those folks. Right? Right. That's, that's the, I love that, you know, 
He's just like, look, there's just certain people it's not worth arguing with about this. Yeah, exactly. You know, those from Black Reconstruction. Yeah, and if um, I can too, like one of my students, thanks Emma, she had submitted a question and you've answered it, which is like, why does Whitman include enslaved people in his poetry? But like you're saying, you know, it's like, why, and this isn't directed to Emma, but like, why are we asking, especially, you know, Adam and I are white intellectuals, male, cisgender, I'm gay, he's straight, but, you know, still we have privileges, but why are we continuing to ask, like, why does Whitman include black people? Or like mm -hmm. that, why aren't we asking, what does Frederick Douglass say? Or even you mentioned Alice Walker. I was so glad to have read Possessing the Secret of Joy in college in one of my courses. And it's an incredible novel about queerness and psychoanalysis and I don't, have you read Possessing the Secret of Joy, Lavelle? Actually, I haven't. Okay, well, I recommend it. It's just, it's such an interesting, I love Alice Walker's novels. Um, yeah. But that representation, like even Whitman just including enslaved people, it really matters <clears throat> how many Black intellectuals you are required to read in college or even picking up at the public library. Um, mm -hmm. And that to me is more where I'm just seeing white intellectuals have not read a range of black intellectual work. So they have so many gaps in their history. To. Yeah, they don't have, they to. Don't have to. Yeah, right. there's a great essay by Tressie McMillan Cottom um, in her collection, Thick. Uh, it's called Girl Six. And it's about, basically about David Brooks, <laughs> which is interesting because she now uh, writes for the New York Times. So. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting development. But um, you know, it's a great. It's just a great critique of his. You know, and she sort of uses him as a kind of proxy for these sort of uh, you know powerful um, white writers who we're all obliged to to read, uh, but they don't have to read us, or they don't have to read any other black any black people at all. And, and she kind of does this analysis of like who people follow on Twitter, mm. which, you know, and, and she sort of contextualizes, you know, what following means. Everybody uses the platform in different ways. But, you know, when she just looks at the numbers of black people who are followed by some of these, you know, um, elite white writers at these major, major publications, um, it's few and far between, you know? Um, so it's like when David Brooks you know, vomit something up on the page, we all have to read engage with it. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't have to read and engage I, with anything I, that black uh, people are writing and thinking about. You know, that that, that's kind of anymore. what that was that. I said, speak for yourself. I don't make that mistake anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but you, it is, I mean, it, it yeah. becomes a topic of conversation. That's what it means to be a writer for the New York Times is that, you know, your work ends up being engaged with no matter how sloppy it is, no matter how many, you know, um, corrections they have to make to it. <laughs> you know, because it's so poorly written. Um, but yet there are, you know, black writers who are doing tremendous work and they don't really have to engage with them. And so and mm -hmm. she just does a great analysis of how that, you know, sort of power differential works, um, particularly when it comes to popular media. Yeah, and, and it's like, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Lavelle. Yeah, no, I just, it's just, it's just a good um, analysis that, that kind of stretches even beyond, you know, newspaper and magazine writing to our broader intellectual culture and who um, whose work is, taken seriously in the public sphere. Yeah, it's yeah. like why, 
I think it's required reading to read Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark. And the amount of times I've heard PhDs or those who've gotten PhDs in English have never read Playing in the Dark, I realize we have an issue. Like there's an issue when there is these canonical black intellectual works that someone who's getting trained to be the next generation has never had to read. Like, you know, why, like you're saying though, it is, it's this very white intellectualized framework of education. And that's, you know, that's why seeing your work, but also I know you've done a lot of work on Samuel Delaney and I'm so excited mm -hmm. because his Times Square Red, Times Square Blue cruising text is one of my favorites. And I use it when I read Whitman and Calamus with cruising, but why even it's not enough to just read the white queer cruising texts like Dancer from the Dance. It's very utopic and idyllic and privileged and on Fire Island. I mean, it's very intriguing, but Samuel Delaney going into, I didn't, you probably didn't know it would end on the sexual cruising, but you know, him entering a Times Square movie theater and he sees all of these different bodies, like yeah. just that kind of community is very different than this more privileged community that, you know, even um, happens in Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. Like it's a very different type of white queer aesthetic. And I think what you're saying is, you know, we should be aware of that, but also that it is, in my opinion, and I can speak from a white intellectual, if I want to claim that, but I can, mm -hmm. um, that it is on us to make sure that we incorporate texts that don't just reinscribe white intellectualism. Like, you have a role to expand your canon. And it goes it goes beyond even the canonical uh, writers mm -hmm. too. I mean, you, make, you said that before, and I kind of you know thought about because there's a way that um, in some cases, having read Morrison or Ellison, you know, uh, people think, oh well, well, I got some blackness in there uh, because I chose these one or two mm -hmm. writers. But what I really wanted to do in in this book, I think, is to engage with a black intellectual tradition um, that's sometimes illegible in the broader you know academic fields. Um, in which this work was written. Um, you know, one of the things that I look at is, is black uh, newspapers, um, magazines and journals that are reviewing uh, some of these novels that have come out. Mm -hmm. Some of the only reviews of Du Bois's uh, The Black Flame uh, come from Phylon, the journal that he founded, right? It was later um, and he wasn't working for them anymore, but uh, that's, that's some of the first people to really engage with his work. Um, when it comes to Jay Saunders Redding and Chester Himes' work, um, you know, uh, or even novels like, you know, Alice Walker's uh, Meridian, uh, more likely to be written about in Black publications. Um, so if you're like not familiar with these Black newspapers and magazines with the Black press, um, you will have missed out on a lot of these uh, critics that are first, you know, uh, responding uh, to mm -hmm. some of this work. Uh, so that's kind of what I, what I wanted to do with the book was to, you know, explore this world where Black intellectuals are having these rich conversations uh, among each other that are not necessarily hidden from everyone else, um, but are really about dealing with issues that Black intellectuals uh, can talk about uh, with each other about some of these larger 
um, issues that might have to do with race and might you know have to do with um, other topics as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I urge everyone. About, well, I was going to say I just urge everyone to read the Black Academic Life because absolutely. even your chronology of the way you divide the time is really helpful to think about this black intellectual tradition and how you're um, categorizing it, like categorizing each chapter um, Mm -hmm. around um, like whether it be Du Bois or whether you, you know, you go into the contemporary moment. You, I mean, you, you have a really wide chronological time that you're writing about. So I applaud you Lavelle because it must've been, a lot of effort to arrange all of those ideas and those figures. That was a little bit of the historian in me. I do have a BA in history, so. Ah, okay. <laughs> so I drew on that quite a bit. Yeah, it comes, it comes out for sure. Yeah. Um, um, and then Delaney, I just had to say, I mean, I'm yeah. teaching uh, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue this semester. Ooh. And it's really fascinating to me to see how that book has become um, kind of people's first uh, entry point uh, for Delaney. Um, I don't know, was that the first Delaney book you'd read or? Yeah, like I didn't know he was a science fiction writer until after yeah. Times Square Red. I always thought of him as a queer cruising, like doing this type of anthropology that mm-hmm. he does there. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's been kind of fascinating. As someone who's followed his work for a while, it's uh, seeing how that book has really taken off. And that, that's the one book that most people know uh, from him. But yeah, there's this, you know, sort of rich, uh, bibliography of works that he's done that go all the way back to the science fiction novels in the 60s. And I'm also teaching um, one of his early science fiction novels called The Ballad of Beta II in a literature class. So oh. I'm kind of curious to see how that'll go because I haven't taught it before. Um, I've taught his novel Nova. Um, I actually have an introduction to Nova that's going to be coming out soon. Oh, congratulations. Um, yeah, thanks. Oh, nice. What's, what's that, um, um, the publisher? It's a Centipede Press. Um, Centipede Press does these uh, specialty editions, uh, limited edition hardcover books. They're a little pricey, um, but each one has uh, signatures of the author and um, myself as the you know author of the introduction, Ooh. and then the signature of the artist uh, who draws these uh, through these illustrations uh, based on the novel. So, um, okay, well, we're going to make sure, not sure to... exactly what the timetable for that is yet. Okay, <laughs> well, we're going to post, let us know, yeah. let us know, yeah. we're going to share it with our farms. audience. Yeah, we will, Absolutely. we will and share for it. For those of you, yeah. I, I wrote down a quotation while I was reading your work, and I just want to yeah. share it with the audience because not everybody has read your, um, not everybody knows what kind of writer you are. I thought that this sentence was, we, we can take it out in post, but I just thought that this was such a, such a well-worded, um, sentence. Uh, One of the challenges of being a Black intellectual in this contemporary moment is not to have one's time, effort, and energy wasted with the obtuse diversionary tactics of white supremacists who insist that they will really truly have an honest dialogue with you if only you can prove the basic humanity of Black people first. Mm -hmm. I I found that so funny and so tragic and like there's some... It happens all the time. Andrew of course, um, you know, it happens all the time with these, right? That's what that's part of the, you know, there's, that's actually kind of drawn on this quote from Toni Morrison that the, the purpose of racism is distraction. You know, <laughs> people have debated that. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of pithy I don't know, mm-hmm. quote that's pulled out from, uh, you know, I'm sure a much more, you know, rich context. Uh, but I mean, I think she definitely hit on something there and that oftentimes what's being done is, is, a, is a way of like, you know, running out the clock and wasting your time. 
And so you have to decide what's worth engaging with. And if you're gonna engage with it, how do you engage with it on your terms? And how do you engage with it in a way that doesn't exhaust you and keep you from doing the work that's important? Mm -hmm. Well, on that, how can everyone follow you, Lavelle, um, on um, social media? Well, I kind of took a long break from Twitter, but I'm on there <laughs> at a Lavelle Porter. Um, that's pretty much the only major social media I'm using at this point. I'm not on the gram. Um, I don't really do <laughs> Facebook too much. So I mostly Twitter. I have a blog, LavellePorter.com. Oh, good. Um, okay. You know, some of my older writings are archived on there. So good. Well, thank yeah, you, I Lavelle, for your time. This was just invaluable. And, you know, I know you are welcome to come back anytime, especially when, um, that publication comes out from Centipede. Um, uh, and yeah, we can't wait to see it. Um, yeah. It meant so much just to have you here to talk about your article, your book. Um, we're going to make sure we link to everything. And yeah, hopefully we all have a smooth fall semester. Yeah, as smooth as it can go right now. So Yes, yeah. yes. All right. Thank Copy you so us. much, Laval. Okay, thank, thank you, you so guys. much. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. All right. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. As we say here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, let's put a bookmark in this. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team consists of me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, our Editor-in-Chief, Adam Katz, our Media Director, Erica Grume, our Chief Contributor, Mary DePippi, and our marketing assistant, Jaren Usta. We thank you all for listening. So please make sure that you like, subscribe, and share the podcast, review it. Um, and if you can, please do donate to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, we are all volunteers here, and we do rely on donations to help build and grow the community. It helps me continue to get really exciting content and book really creative guests. So allowing for the creative writers to come, the academic writers, um, the performers to come, anyone who's literary and artistic. It just helps me continue to expand this public humanities vision. Um, also make sure that you do follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and you can even join our Facebook group, all at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you to Words Matter Bookstore, our sponsor. And we always are looking for interview requests or creative writing requests. Um, if you want to share your writing, if you think that you would be a great fit to be interviewed on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, please email us, ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. Yeah.